Unfiltered Free Range American Podcast, presented by BlackRifleCoffee.com. Preston Flamer Wallace, welcome to the Old Breed, a subseries of Free Range American. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I'm super excited now because we're at this point in Black Rifle Coffee where um, we're in this growth and expansion period. And it's super awesome to have individuals like yourself who served in a, in a pretty cool capacity in the Marine Corps doing something completely different. Uh, and now kind of finding that new track in their life. And I wanted to take this opportunity to come back and kind of tell some stories from from your time in the Marine Corps and and maybe um you know get a get an idea of what it was like to be a F18 pilot. Sure, yeah, shoot away. <laughs> so, um Preston Flamer Wallace, um and I know you told me this before but I can't remember exactly. How do you go about picking uh your call sign as a pilot? So a surefire way to pick your call sign is to say that you don't like it because you don't actually get a choice. Um, the way the call sign review board works, and it's an official board. A call sign review board. I like that we're like this formal. It like, is a very <laughs> formal thing. Yes. Uh, so usually how it works is a week prior, they'll put up a whiteboard and they'll put up the new guy's name who doesn't have a call sign yet. And then everybody else in the squadron thinks of a funny story or something that they have done that was stupid generally and write some kind of moniker based on Yes, yes. And, and go ahead. So I happen to have a small in-flight fire uh, at one point in flight school. And so it it really wasn't that big of a deal, but the brakes caught on fire. So, all right, you got to get a little bit more into the weeds on that. Okay. You're like, I want to, it seems like we need to put small into quotation marks here. Um, it's like, I don't know how there's a, a tiny, small fire. Like, yeah. did you have a couple twigs? Like, fire fires definitely yeah, are so small. I was in flight school and flight school sounds awesome and it's great and everything like that. You get to fly and everybody thinks they're cool and they got their leather jacket and everything. Uh, but it's just a, a lot of administrative style flying. So a lot of takeoffs and landings and practice landings and stuff like that. And just the, the way that we had done it erroneously, like a bunch of fucking idiots, we had done two full stop landings in a row and which uses a lot of braking power and those things overheat pretty easily after more than one or two applications. Sure. Well, we took off the second time and we were just going to come back and land again. Uh, and I started, you know, the, the tower saw us and they said, hey, you you're, got some smoke. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Very, very nonchalantly. Hey, you appear to be on fire. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Well, do you think they did that because they're like, they didn't want to freak you out as a, as someone who's going through flight school? Were they trying to keep you calm or were they just like dumb devs? Like, hmm, that's a little strange. Based on my experiences with military tower control, I'm going to say it's the latter. They're just going to like, oh, okay. that's fucking weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we land and, uh, you know, the brakes were all broken and we popped both tires and it cut hydraulic lines and that's caught on fire. And then, the you know, crash fire rescue came out and we're trying to get out of this plane that we're like, we don't know what's on fire. We just know it's on fire. And then they start spraying the hose and we're getting <laughs> fucking soaked getting out of this plane. So, so you... you- 
popped both tires on landing? Well, in the landing rollout, because the, the brakes were so hot that they popped the tires. Gotcha. Okay. And then so it started getting real squirrely as See, we're landing. Yeah, exactly. You said small fire earlier. It, it sounds not small at all. It sounds like quite an incident. It was an incident, but compared to other in-flight fires and of friends that I have known who have been flying and had like catastrophic issues with their planes, this is yeah. a pretty, I mean, we landed safely, got out of, you know, there was damage to the plane, but it was recoverable. Yeah. So is in the grand scheme of damage to aircraft is pretty light. And where were you at in flight school when this happened? So I was in Meridian, Mississippi, where, which is one of the, the a wonderful place to be, but a terrible place to fly because it's just always thunderstorms, like no matter what time of year, which just sucks. But uh, I liked being there it was, um, and everything like that. But I was flying, it's called advanced, uh, intermediate and advanced flight school. So I'd already done the primary stuff where you fly a, a, a T6, which is like a kind of like a P-51-esque oh, okay. capability aircraft uh, and to a, it's a single engine jet aircraft that's um t-45 is what i was flying at the time and it uh, it's aircraft carrier capable so it's got a hook and you can land on the boat with it and stuff so i was flying that and i was about i don't know five or six months away from getting my wings which would designate me a naval aviator oh, okay and how long is that process of flight school or does it vary depending on the type of aircraft that you're going to end up flying? Uh, it varies on what pipeline you're in. So I was, I had selected jets. So my pipeline was, you can average it to between three and three and a half years total flying from like the day you check into Pensacola. I'm in flight school now to getting your wings is about three to three and a half years. That's a, that's a pretty long pipeline, man. Yeah. It takes a while. I want, I want to say like, if I remember right, like PJ's pipeline is like two years and that's, that's a pretty, pretty long time to be training before you do your job. This, this was 2010 and um, sequestration had happened and, uh, or maybe it was 2011, but it was, you know, defunding of the military under the uh, Obama administration started to happen and everything had kind of really slowed down. I think they've actually accelerated the pipelines pretty substantially. When I was there, if you got to the fleet as a jet pilot and you were still a lieutenant, that was a big deal. That means you went really fast. Hmm. Uh, most everybody when I was in was uh, showing up as a captain. Okay. So they had, you know, people that I had joined with were already out. They had already done their four-year tour before I had even been to a fleet unit. Oh, okay. And taking a step back, um, what made you initially make that decision to join the Marine Corps? So initially joined the Marine Corps, I, I have a very interesting path. I've chosen all of these different forks in my career. Yeah. Uh, I went to the Merchant Marine Academy in New York because I wanted to be a Navy submarine guy. Why would you possibly want to do that? Well, one too many Tom Clancy books. <laughs> okay. Fair. And fair. Uh, it, so I decided that, you know, I'm going to do that. And at Merchant Marine Academy, they had a major in marine engineering systems with a minor in nuclear propulsion. Okay. I was like, fuck yeah, that sounds great. If I have that, they'll select me all day. Uh, no, if you don't have a 3.5 GPA, the Navy does not care. It's like, but I'd have all this engineering. Like, no, no, okay. we don't care. So as a fuck you to the Navy, me and my buddy, Will Donnelly, decided we're going to join the Marines. He had already, he had been prior enlisted. And he said, we're going to join the Marines and we're both going to be infantry. So 
that's what I joined to do. And in 2008, we got our commission. Yeah, that's how you stick it to the Navy right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we go the, be Marine Corps infantry. In the eyes of a, a Suck it. 19, 20 year old who's just pumping <laughs> on testosterone, it makes right, sense. Right. So, but yeah, so that's how I joined the Marines. And uh, we went to the basic school, which is every Marine officer has to go through. It's about six months in Quantico, Virginia. Uh, so, the, you know, the moniker, every Marine is a rifleman. Uh, they decided to put this little caveat for officers. Every Marine officer is the provisionary rifle platoon commander. Not that I would suggest letting me run a platoon of Marines <laughs> uh, going into combat, but uh, that's the basis. So uh, after TBS, or excuse me, during TBS, I wound up tearing my ACL in uh, McNinja, McMap, and, uh, and a lot of people just injured themselves. Yeah. I remember very specifically, they were saying, all right, guys, we're going to do leg sweeps today. Uh, 50%, 50% speed, you know, so take it easy. And I'm looking across at this guy and he's a, obviously a collegiate athlete. He's breathing really hard and he's fucking jazzed. And then I'm like, dude, fucking, hey, 50%. Relax. <laughs> Relax, <laughs> no, buddy. We're on the same team here. <laughs> and he, they said, execute. And that motherfucker just laid me out. <laughs> dude, you you always have those people in there that are like, they, they don't know how to like turn it down at everything's all. A, everything's a competition. And, and especially like the amount of ego that exists in the Marine Corps. When you go, McMap is the Marine Corps martial arts program. And it like... Uh, you're you're absolutely right. Like I don't think anybody ever like did a class without somebody getting seriously injured or yeah. a, bu a buddy I joined with um, the same day. He also got injured. He broke uh, somebody stepped on his ankle doing the same thing and broke yeah. like tore all of his ligaments, broke like three three or four bones in his ankle, and he had to, you know a bunch of pins. And it took both of us about a year to get back in the training. Yeah, yeah. So. <clears throat> You injure yourself in TBS and then... Yeah, so, I, I mean, I had never really been, had a major injury in my life. So knowing what I know about Navy medicine now, I should have been very aggressive with them. But anyways, I got the surgery and they said, all right, you got 30 days of convalescence leave. And I didn't know that I was supposed to be rehabbing or anything. I'm just sitting there, you know, atrophying. Yeah. I lost 30 pounds of leg muscle in a month. And I come back, I'm like, hey guys, what's going on? And they're like, you haven't done any rehab? I'm like, no, nobody told me to. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm lieutenant. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it took me a while to get um, re rehabilitated and everything. But anyways, long story short, the point is uh, I decided that my knee was probably going to explode on some mountain in Afghanistan or at IOC if I was able to select infantry. And being a, an engineer from a nautical school, I took the ASTB or the Aviation Standardized Testing Battery, which is like the, you know, you can test the capacity of somebody's ability to be a pilot with this test. Yeah. I took it, hopped up on coffee and having not studied. Of course. And yes. And, and freaking aced it. And, and they're like, hey, can I be a pilot? And they had competitive flight spots at that point. Normally, most guys join with a, with a, contract. They show up and they're like, I'm going to be a pilot right. no matter what you do. They even had it. We even had an acronym for it. It's called FIGMAC. Fuck it. I got my air contract. So <laughs> they didn't have to yeah. work that hard. So is that, is that test, is that for fixed wing, helo, or is it specifically for jets? It's just 
for just to be able to go to flight school. It's a flight aptitude test. Gotcha. Okay. So it's, it, there's some engineering. Is this like a math. paper test? Is yeah. it a, okay. There's, there's different parts. They have spatial app perception uh, where they show you a picture of a plane banking and with, you know, and you see a certain horizon and then they say, okay, match this to what the cockpit should look like. Sure. So, you know, silly stuff like that. And like, you know, which direction is port or, you know, Port is left. I remember this from my time in the Marine Corps because it has four letters and so does left. Look at me go. There you go. Look Don't ever you. say Marines are dumb. <laughs> uh, but I took the test and and I did pretty well on it. And I, I used that plus uh, um, some of the other qualifying things that they decided were required. Uh, so like basic, you know, military knowledge tests and leadership capability tests and whatever, that kind of stuff. And they said, yeah, this guy has it. He can take it to the spot. Yeah. yeah. And so after you kind of are like, oh shit, this is a, this is a potential thing that I, that I can get into. How long did it take before you actually found yourself doing that thing? Cause so, you went LAR for a while, right? That was at the end. Okay. The end of my career. I was at LAR. Uh, but so from like getting selected an air contract, that was, I want to say March, 2010. And I graduated from there in May, 2010. And I showed up to Pensacola in October of that okay. year. And then I think around January is when I classed up for API, uh, aviation pre-flight indoctrination where they, you know, try to drown you and you do some aeronautics testing. You don't ever touch a plane or anything like that, but, you know, you know, swim a mile in a flight suit and know how to not drown, you know, shit like that. Yeah. So you did like the dunk, I'm sure there's some version of the dunker, like the helo dunker. Yeah. I did that later. Uh, so they wait until you find out what type of platform you're going to be flying, uh, because the, the, the requirements from the Navy are different. So if you go helicopters, you have to do a more intensive helo dunker, uh, and you can use the air bottle. If you're doing, uh, fixed wing, you do the Gila dunker from the back seat only, and you don't get an air bottle. As it, because you're, you, you know, the only time you're going to be in a helicopter in a crash, hopefully, is if you're a passenger. Did you have to wear the blackout goggles when yeah. you're doing it too? Yeah. yeah. Good. Good. That shit never bothered me. That, yeah. that, it freaks some people out, but it never bothered me. Yeah. And going through the process of flight school for you, did, did you feel like that was, uh, like, was there any part in that where you're like, oh God, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this or, or did you feel like you aligned pretty well with the necessary capabilities to be able to do something like that? Uh, I felt, you know, thinking back on, I feel, I felt pretty comfortable there. Um, Cause that like, that's, it's cool and, and everything like, but flying and being a pilot is one of those things like, like 75% of people who join the military would, would want to do, you know what I mean? It's one of those very much glorified positions, but mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, the people who are actually capable to be able to do that thing it is such a small fraction of the people who join the military. Um, I have to imagine that, uh, you know, like a lot of these um, specialty schools, the, the dropout rates got to be pretty high within this as well. I would say the dropout rate decreases significantly the further you go in. They, you know, the big weed out is um, uh, air sickness initially. Okay. A lot of people get air sick and they, you know, they, they don't take that lightly. If you get air sick, uh, you know, once and they and the, the instructor has to take the controls from you, has to take over the plane um, and land it, 
like that's a big deal. That you know, that's a lot right. of taxpayer dollars that just got wasted because you got sick. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, in order to ensure that you don't get sick, they put you in like this topsy-turvy chair with goggles on and they basically try to induce vomiting. Yeah. And, and that's where you're like in a chair and then they essentially spin you in a circle. They spin you and it goes side to side and whatever. I've never, I never had to deal with it. So I never saw it, but I know that like people would come back and they'd be green in the face. And just, You never had to go through that? I never got air sick. Never was a problem for me. Yeah. I get car sick. If I'm reading in the car, I get sick. But See, that's plane, super no. interesting. Like, why do, why do you think that you're just apt to be able to handle that? Is there something about your your composition as a human that, that would allow you to do that? Because I don't feel like it's a mental thing. It's not. It's a vestibular thing. So, you know, when you get drunk and you start to t- fall over and stuff like that, that's because your inner ear, the liquid in there is thinned out. So there's just liquid going around in your ear. And that's what tells you what's up. Uh, and my vestibular system, I guess, was just a little bit more adaptable to that. Whereas mm-hmm. some guys, you know, you turn hard in an airplane and they're like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just because they, it just turns their stomach upside down. Yeah. And, and that's, that's just a physical uh, attribute that, yeah, that it's you a physiological thing. Yeah. So if you do that test where you uh, put your forehead on a baseball bat and you got to spin around it a certain amount of times, will that pretty much give you a pretty good indicator as to whether or not you'll be a good pilot? Depends on how many drinks you've had. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it'll, I think it'll be a good indicator of uh, how, how, what fraternity you're in in college. <laughs> and uh, two, um, if you're going to get airsick, yeah. Um, how, how much just like fun was it to, to like be into that position where you're like, this is a pretty rad profession I'm, I'm getting into here. So that's a really interesting question. Um, it happens so fast and the job itself is so stressful. And it's especially when you first start flying, you are scared to death. Just by adding that extra dimension of altitude, like your mind is just flying a million miles. Right. Um, and so you just, you're just constantly stressed. It takes a long time to actually get comfortable, especially when you're flying by yourself, just being alone with your thoughts and not have somebody yapping in your ear. Because then all of a sudden it's like, I'm I'm thirty thousand feet in the air. Like if something goes wrong, I am right fucked, or I don't want to eject. You know that's a bad day. Yeah. Um, it it honestly took me a couple years until I started really enjoying flying. Um, that's just because of comfort. Flight school, everything's a test. There is no like freebie flight. You're not just going up there to to jerk around. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, everything is a test. So I would say that the stress of that uh, weighed heavily at the moment. But just like everything, you know, if you're a sniper, Logan, people like to go, oh, shit, you were a sniper. That's really cool. Same with being a pilot. If you tell somebody you're an aviator, you know, I'm a jet pilot, go, go ask somebody if they're a jet pilot. And if they are, you'll see a smirk every single time because they're so <laughs> proud of it. Yeah. Uh, what's the saying? Like, how do you know if somebody's a pilot? They'll tell you. Right. So um, just having that, like that internal pride after the stress had worn off. Yeah. Well, and, and do right. I mean, it's pretty freaking rad, right? Like you're, you're going at incredible speeds, at high altitudes and, and a weapon. Like you're just, that's the whole purpose. You're flying a freaking weapon that's attached to a jet propulsion system. Yeah. I have to imagine that um, after you felt like you had uh, not complete mastery, but you got to that point where you're like comfortable and confident 
in your craft, you were, it just has to give you this sense of confidence in, in what you're doing that, that carries over into the, the tactical side of, of what you're operationally doing. It, it does. Uh, it, just like anything with, with the Marine Corps or the military writ large, they find a way to make it not fun. Like camping's kind of ruined for me right? <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or hiking. Right. But um, the, yes, there were plenty of times when I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. But then after about 10 seconds of daydreaming about how cool this is, I'm like, oh, fuck, I have gone five miles. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Um, but yeah, there were, there were definitely plenty of times. After the mastery, or at least the comfort level had increased. And yeah. I felt confident that if something happened, I would be okay. I would be able to take care of myself. Yeah. So, so give me the lay of the land uh, and the listeners the lay of the land, just as far as like the, the overall capabilities of the F-18. Man, um, so if you watch like, you know, those military channel shows, they talk about the capabilities of aircrafts and stuff like that. You know, they'll, they'll talk about like top speed and, you know, max G and stuff like that. The F-18 was the first plane designed to be good enough, hmm. not just really good. So everything before the F-18, you think F-14, you think uh, even further back F-4, those were just giant fucking rocket ships. They went super fast but they didn't really maneuver very well. The mm -hmm. F-18 and F-16 were kind of designed in tandem uh, next to each other uh, to be capable maneuvering aircraft. Um, the F-18 specifically can do some crazy stuff. It can maneuver very aggressively and still be in control. Break that down a little bit for me. Sure. As far as like with maneuverable capabilities. So the... Getting in, trying to break it down as much as I can. I have the curse of knowledge on it, right? Uh, so there's two kinds of maneuvering that we think about. One is nose authority, being able to point my nose at whatever I want at any point in time and being able to turn around a circle fast. So the, a, a great pilot that I remember, uh, Humpty, uh, broke it down. And fighter, uh, fighter tactics is all about circles and triangles. So if you know geometry, you can be a fighter pilot. Um, so knowing how to turn in a circle really hard and maintain energy on the aircraft or being able to reorient your nose uh, are, are the, the benefits of the F-18. So what am I talking about? Uh, without talking, you know, into the, the classified space, let's just say, you know, when you're playing Super Mario Brothers and, you know, you do the start select, A, B, A, B. Yeah. Uh, the F-18 has a couple of those logics in it. Where if you're in a certain air regime and you're at a certain power setting uh, and you do the same something with the stick and rudder at the same time, uh, the plane will understand what you meant and just do it. Oh, okay. So, Interesting. So, for instance, this isn't secret. So, but if I put my right foot down and my stick right, full right and full forward, right? Uh, it's been years since I've done it, but that that's that is a. Uh, there's a name to that logic in the airplane. If you did that in any other airplane, you push the rudder to the right, the plane yaws. If you do like that, you're going <laughs> to you have a very uncomfortable day. Yeah. And all of your passengers are going to be like, what the fuck is this guy <laughs> yeah. doing? But if you do that in the plane, in the F-18, and you meet all the requirements for it to be initiated, the plane will basically flop over on itself and do a 180. Point okay. the nose where your ass was. Really? And it is super aggressive and you are like, 
thank God you're strapped in. Yeah. But yeah. So, so are you, as it's making that maneuver, are you just maintaining that, that pin of the stick in the pedal? Yeah, you maintain it. And then, I mean, there's a time when you pull it out. There's kind of an art to it, but they kind of say, you know, when you're about, you know, halfway to where you want to be, center everything, mm -hmm. and then the plane will kind of slow down. Um, some people were able to do it really well. That particular one, I never really could master. Yeah. Um, those are, but those things are kind of last ditch efforts. The F-18 is actually kind of an underpowered fighter jet. So an F-16 is like a, a superpowered fighter jet. The F-22 even more so. Yeah. And uh, based off of our, our previous conversations and, and where we're at now in this, it seems like it was, um, it, it was kind of really crafted to be this uh, ground support. It's a, so the definition is a multi-role fighter. Uh, that's why it's not an F-18's FA-18 fighter attack. Uh, that's why the Marine Corps bought it because yeah. it, one, it's carrier capable. Uh, two, it does fighter tactics just fine, carries missiles, goes supersonic, uh, all that stuff and has a pretty uh, a decent radar. But it also has plenty of air to ground stations. And there's literally a button that says A slash A and a button directly underneath it that says A slash G. So depending on what master mode you want to be in, it's like I want to shoot down planes today, A air to air, or just select an air to air weapon on your stick. Uh, if you want to drop bombs today, air to ground. And then all of the symbology changes to air to ground stuff. Uh, so yeah, the, the, it, the, it was designed to do a, uh, unes uh, unescorted strike. So that means it could go into a hostile environment with other airplanes, shoot those dudes down, drop bombs, and then flex, flex dick out and shoot down more planes and just be like, yo, I did it. So, and they did that in the Gulf War in like 90, what, 91. There's videos of this uh, Marine F-18, two of them come in, they shoot down some Iraqi MiGs and then they drop some bombs and then they, they tail it out. So Is that on like YouTube? Yeah. Hey, we need to get that video and lay that over this part, um, which leads us into a really, you know, what I think outside of uh, the top speed question, we want to know is like, what kind of munitions you rock and what's, what's our weapons capability on this bad boy? Pretty much anything that the Marine Corps has made for an airplane can go on it. <laughs> all of it. All of it. <laughs> Not all at the same time, obviously. Uh, when I was flying combat missions, I would carry two AMRAM, which are radar-guided missiles, two uh, AIM-9s, which are heat-seeking missiles. Uh, so I'd have four air-to-air -air missiles. Uh, and then I would normally carry between two and to four bombs. And those bombs might be, you know, 500-pounders or 1,000-pounders, depending uh, on what we needed that day, uh, to, you know, potentially low collaterals, which we were carrying specifically in Mosul, uh, just because it, you know, it was a very tight urban fight and they didn't want big bada booms. They wanted the smaller booms. Um, but then we went to Raqqa. It was like, no, dude, leave those local, local lateral shits at home. Bring us, bring four thousand pounders. And so we did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, which is super cool to be able to, you know, it is highly adaptable and what you can outfit on this thing. Yeah. Thanks, Evan. Chiming in here. Um, so working into, uh, you know, you, you brought up your, your combat missions here and the fact that you were in Raqqa, you know, I, I tried to pay as much attention towards what was going on in the development with, with ISIS and ISIS K coming online. And so 
it's really interesting because Raqqa became uh, essentially the capital of ISIS. Um, what was like 2017, 2018 timeframe, right? Yeah, yeah. 20, I want to say 2015, 2016 was when they, when they said this is the, the capital of the caliphate. And 2017 was when I was in summer 2017 when Donald Trump had said, hey, Mattis, you're right, you know, head of DOD, uh, go to it. And Mattis kind of like ripped out all these pages of the ROE. They didn't obviously do that, but, you know, he, he yeah, limited it and made it to be a little bit more open. Yeah. Um, and it, it made our jobs quite a lot easier. Okay, so... Take me to like, uh, let's say the beginning of that kind of deployment where you were at and in, mm -hmm. in the um, sort of the lead up to that. Like, I have to imagine that you as a, a F-18 pilot uh, and officer are, are getting a decent amount of information as to the thing that you're about to go do, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> your primary purpose was uh, direct support of special operations. Is that correct? So I, no, it wasn't direct support of uh, um, special operations. So we were tied into CENTCOM and we were flying out of uh, Bahrain uh, at the time. And our whole deal, why are we there? Why is, why are there Marine fighter jets in the Middle East? It wasn't to, to fight ISIS. It was actually to, there's always a squadron of fighters in the Middle East, specifically on the Gulf, uh, to provide a presence against Iran. Uh, so South, Operation Southern Watch was a thing before the Gulf okay. War started. Yeah. And there are always F-16s in Kuwait for that reason. However, since we aren't in a you know, kinetic war with Iran at the time, and we aren't in any, anyways, but... They said, hey, we got all these extra planes and we're, we got this giant air campaign, you know, 200 miles north. Uh, can we go? Uh, obviously, that was, it was a lot more planned than that and it wasn't so willy-nilly, but that's what we did. So we, were, we showed up. We're like, there's Iran. Cool. Well, we're going to Syria. So see ya. Um, and every day we'd send two launches, uh, a day go and a night go. But preparing for that was interesting. So I was actually the senior captain, which is an unofficial leadership role, basically the lead of the hoodlums yeah. in the officer yeah, corps. Yeah, like senior Lance Corporal. Yeah, so basically just to keep the, you know, the shenanigans down and yeah. and keep those assholes from getting <laughs> yeah. the CO in trouble. Uh, but I had extended. So my, my tour was five years long. You know, in the Marines, every tour is about three years. And that holds true for the wing as well. But I saw this combat deployment coming up. And I'm like, no, I want to, I want to go. Like I've done all of this training. I've been in the Marine Corps at that point, about eight years and nothing but training. And there's this whole war going on. When I first joined 2008, I mean. Yeah, I was, we were in the thick of it. Yeah. So, so sure. I was like, when am I going to, when's going to be my shot? Uh, it, it, was this all just a readiness drill? Uh, so this was my time to actually, regardless of your opinions on the war and whatever, but it was a time to actually get some professional feedback professionally um, rewarding to do the task I was taught to do. Yeah. And it's pretty common to hear that across the different professions within the military. Um, but it's, it, it makes a ton of sense. Like you, you spend all this time, effort, energy to developing these skills to, to go do said task. And then uh, it happens more than you would think to where, you know, you're kind of sitting there twiddling your thumbs and you have to like work, to go do your job, essentially. Yeah. 
So you get to Bahrain and uh, was the the op tempo and that cadence like pretty much green light right out of the gate and, and didn't slow down? Or did it take you guys a little bit to get incorporated and get a feel for what was going on north of you? So just to, sh- to show you the flexibility of the Marine Corps, um, so we, we brought uh, 10 jets. We, we flew them all from South Carolina all the way to Bahrain with one stop in Spain. Um, when we launched, we would launch, you know, a ship, a five ship with a tanker followed 30 minutes later with a five ship and a tanker so that we would all get there roughly within the same hour. Um, I was in the lead cell and we got there only to find out that the trail cell, cell two had had a, you know, a mechanical issue that would not allow them to continue. It wasn't like an emergency or anything like that, but it's like, Hey, I don't want to fly. 10 hours to Bahrain with this problem. So they turned around and it took them about two weeks to fix that jet and bring bring all of them. So we landed in Bahrain and within, I think, three days, which was the the, the minimum amount of time we had to rest based on the, the time zone shift. So if you move so many time zones, you have to take a day right. um, for, for crew rest requirements for, you know, all the, all the grunts are going to be like, what's crew rest? Like, fuck you. You're not going 500 miles an hour. Uh, uh, so, uh, we got there and within three days we're doing combat operations. Yeah. Uh, the CO made it at a point, you know, uh, Sprocket was like, yo, we're, no, we're not waiting. We're here. We have missions. We're going. I was actually on the first mission that launched. Uh, I was the wingman at that time. I, I was a flight lead, but I was not for that particular mission. I was a wingman. Um, but we launched within three days and these guys are still in Spain drinking wine and I'm in, you know, Iraq, Syria. So that's the flexibility. Now, as far as like getting ready, no, for three months prior to going, we had been pouring over the SOPs, the ROEs. Like we are not going to be the dumb people in this AO. We're going to have our shit squared away. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, when you're going 500 miles an hour, you're dealing with a completely different world. And those, you know, you talk about split second decisions, everything is is happening so much faster than than what just about everybody that exists in life is used to, right? Yeah. So my, the first mission, I, this is, again, the flexibility uh, and the, just the amount of training that we had put into it. Um, our first mission was to do close air support in Mosul. And like we had been pouring over the maps of Mosul for months. We were expecting to go to Mosul for months. You know, we did, we already knew what kind of loadout we were expecting to be carrying. So we already knew the weapons. We knew all of our weapons, but like very intimately know how to employ them. Um, and then the OPSO comes in and he says, uh, we're in our brief. Like we're about an hour from going to the plane, you know, strapping in, got my nine, in my vest, I'm ready to go. Um, they're get, we're getting our intel brief. This, the officer comes in, he's sweaty, he's been in the gym. He's like, hey, stand by for Frago. You are no longer going to Iraq, to Mosul to do close air support. You're going to Syria to do defensive counter air. And I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> so that's that's quite a curveball. Yeah, yeah that's a curveball. Uh, so not even enough time to unload the jets. So we're bringing our bombs with us, but we're doing an air-to-air mission. Not to get too deep into the weeds of what it was, but there were a special operations group uh, on the border of Syria and Iraq that were getting surrounded by ISIS dudes and Russians and Syrians and all this crazy shit was happening. So from that day forward, they said, we will have a 24-hour combat air patrol overhead, these dudes, day in and day out. 
And to my knowledge, they still do. They're still flying overhead. Dude, that's such a, a crazy shift in in op tempo. And, and you go from, did, did you have any like kind of thoughts in the back of your head to where it was like, ah, oh, this may become something way more complex than what I initially thought it was. Like you're, you're talking about throwing in factors to now uh, you're talking about air to air and basically everything you went through earlier, as far as what your, your aircraft is capable of, you now have to be prepared to do all of that as opposed to ground support. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it was a huge shift and we didn't even, they, they just kind of gave us a grid. They said, here's your, here's your grid. And, you know, defend it, I guess, you know, yeah. <laughs> That's much of it. Um, and it, it was so weird because we, we were expecting to go to Iraq, which was, you know, pretty, um, how do you say it? It's, it was hot. It was hot. Right. But it was, but for air guys, like we're, you know, if we're above 10,000 feet, I am, I'm eating a slim gym, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not worried about surface to air threats. I'm not worried about getting shot down. I'm in an, I'm, uh, I forget the terminology I've been out for so long, but uh, sanctuary. We're in a sanctuary. Yeah. When you go to Syria, they have one of the more complex integrated air defense systems in the world. And, you know, I'm where I'm flying. I'm like, they, all these dudes can touch me. And I'm like, oh, yeah. fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of uh, air defense capabilities did they have on the ground at the time that you were getting intel on? So it's a lot of older Russian stuff um, that has some some issue. Um, it's, it's outdated. I, I don't want to get too much into it. A lot of that stuff is, is classified still. Um, if you were to look at an example of the quality of their equipment, I would say, look at the TLAM launch that Trump did, uh, in 2017. And he did two, he did one and, you know, blew up a bunch of stuff with his TLAMs. And then the second one, he launched even more Tomahawks and the Syrians were like, no, we're going to shoot them down. Then they, they're like, they didn't shoot down one. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're just shooting bottle rockets in the air. They were not accurate. Yeah. So, and, and how low altitude wise you have to be to like be super concerned about these threats with the, with the threats that they had, I couldn't get high enough. Yeah. They're they're. I mean, those are st uh, strategic sized equipment. So like we're talking, you know, higher than I could ever fly. So I, if I'm, if I'm airborne, they can shoot me down. So pretty much from the time that you got this is Frago where you're like, oh, nope, we're doing this now. Um, it, it didn't really relax at all. It was your, your posture. It was pretty like we're, we're in it from, for the majority of this deployment. Yeah. So um, it turned out after, after all was said and done and, and we had left uh, about, I would say 60% of our missions were that defensive counter air mission. The rest was either close air support and then a, a, a vast majority of it was close air support and then a small portion of directed action. So, you know, you launch and you know what your target is. So you just go, you get there, make sure there's no, uh, you know, other, no things that I can't destroy in the area and then drop and go home. Yeah. And I think you, I remember you saying you were, you're predominantly doing night missions. So the first month and a half, two months I was there, I was day the rest of the deployment, I only flew at night. And why did that shift occur? Uh, they, they wanted to rotate people around. Yeah. Um, I didn't ever rotate back to the day side because, I don't know, I just like, one, I liked night. Um, I liked flying at night. And... Why did you like flying at night? Uh, 
we have a distinct advantage at night with sure. MVGs and our uh, thermal imaging pods. Um, and also there's not nearly as much commercial aircraft airborne. So, I mean, you think about it like, oh, we're just in a combat zone. There won't be airliners. No, there's fucking airliners, like Egypt Air flying through. You're <laughs> yeah. like, oh shit, what's up, man? Um, it's such a weird way to fight a war. <laughs> it is. Like, I mean, it, at points we would join those dudes because we wouldn't know who they were. And when we were, when we were over this, you know, this, these dudes we were protecting, if they were entering the area. We didn't necessarily know who they were until we got closer. So we join on commercial aircraft. They would never know we're there. I mean, it's nighttime and we're lights out. Yeah. But I mean, we join them and we're like, well, it's a tanker. Yeah. So I'm, as, as you're talking through this, uh, I'm trying to put my, myself in your shoes and, and really get a, a good idea about like kind of what the, what, what it was like to be in the moment, uh, doing all this stuff at night. Um, and, and I know how compact you are within the cockpit. Um, it, there's so much going on all at once. Like, how are you navigating and efficiently communicating all of this stuff all at the same time? So, I mean, shout out to Jocko, but it's just prioritize and execute, yeah. right? So that that was nailed into our heads for every, every day uh, in flight school. And it's just like, oh, well, what was that? It's like, why are you worried about that? We don't even have to worry about that anymore. We have to worry about that. Um, everything is standardized, even to the communication within the cockpit. So I was at, I flew two seaters, so my backseater was a, was a Wizzo. He doesn't; he's not a pilot, but he's you know, an integral part of the team. When you say Wizzo, weapons, uh, weapons and sensors, sensors officer. Okay. So Goose. Uh, so he doesn't have controls of the aircraft. I'm the pilot, and I have weapons release authority. He does not. But we have a team, and we task prioritize things. They they primarily use the radio. Uh, they run the targeting pod. Um, they control you know data entry for you know, targeting or whatever. Uh, whereas I just kind of worry about where we're going, making sure that we're going in the right direction or at the right altitude, not about to crash the plane, and then verifying that the targets that we're, we're slewed onto are indeed the, what we need to destroy. And then overall weapons release authority. Yeah. And as this deployment kind of worked on, um, did, did it, your combat operation, did, did it kind of reach a climax at all to where it was like um, all of this stuff was going on and you were, you were highly entrenched in the, in the fight? So yeah, there was. Um, that would be about, about month two. Month two, that, so we're talking July 2017. And around that time, uh, they had decided, hey, look, these, you know, these Russian aircraft, these Syrian aircraft are f fucking with us. And we, we don't do that. We are done playing games. Now, when you say they were fucking with you, what? So like a, a Russian aircraft joined me when I was in Syria and just like, you know, pulled up right beside me. He, he just pulled a top gun on your ass? Pretty much. Damn. I, I did a couple of myself too. But so the whole point is like, hey, if somebody's on your tail... Do not maneuver aggressively because that in and of itself could meet their hostile intent requirements to shoot my yeah. ass down. So just kind of chill, see what happens. Hopefully you got a wingman. And what were these Russians in? They were in a Su-30, uh, so a flanker, a two-seat flanker variant. And they were loaded down with nothing but air-to-air -air missiles. And I'm like, fuck. 
Oh, they didn't have any air no, to ground? No, they were air to air only. Damn. And I'm like, God damn. And so if, if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with a flanker, but they're gigantic. They are fucking massive. They're bigger than an F-15. They're, the, the, they're bigger than a tennis court. They are gigantic. Uh, so to see one up close, you're like, oh, my, my little plane. <laughs> so did, did you know that, like, could you tell on the radar that this dude was coming up? And so the radar looks forward. But yeah, I knew he was there. Yeah. I knew he was there. And then I'm just, I'm looking over my shoulder. Sorry, microphone. I'm looking over my shoulder, waiting for him to, to do what he's going to do. And luckily my wingman was super lost. And <laughs> it was 60 miles away going the other direction. So I, I'm mostly just yelling at him to pull his head out of his ass and, and get over here and yeah. protect me. Um, asshole a little bit tight, a little bit puckered. Yeah, I pulled some ejection seat out of my asshole. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, it was stressful for sure. Uh, there were a couple of times when I did the same thing. And uh, there, so the mission that I was on in particular, I was tanking. So, you know, we have about an hour and a half worth of gas in the plane. And, but these are nine hour missions. So we're constantly refueling. Yeah. Usually about seven, eight, nine times a mission, depending. Um, <clears throat> and we would do what we would call yo-yo operations. So my wing one would be over the protected asset, I'd go 80 miles this way, get some gas, come back. And as soon as I relieve him, he goes and gets gas. And we'll do that every hour. So, so you're just constantly maintaining this, refueling <clears throat> on For about on 15, 15, minutes for, 15 minutes out of every hour, it is manned by one person. Um, <clears throat> the other 45 minutes, we're both there as okay. gas kind gotcha. of yep. burns down. Um, but I'm on the tanker. I just got there and I just get a splash of gas and <clears throat> AWACS, which is the guys who have the big radar dish and know where people are, airplanes are, had been tracking these two um, Russian aircraft, which were kind of near Damascus, sort of the northwest, yep. the west side of Syria, out of our purview. Not really a concern, but we're keeping an eye on them. Like, I see you over there, but yeah, yeah. you're not in, you know, not in my realm yet. Well, they had took, take a, taken a cutoff vector and we're heading directly for me in the tanker. And so this is that prioritize and execute thing that we were talking about earlier. It's like my number one priority at that time before that call out was getting more gas so that I have plenty of fuel to land in a happy place. Right. Because uh, you're not close to a, a happy place no. at all. What are you like? So this was 900 miles away. I was in central Syria. So our nearest base to land at with a happy face would be probably Al-Assad. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, I think it was about 300, 400 miles away. Yeah. But yeah, far enough. Yeah. I mean, Damascus was really close, but I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. land there. Uh, but so I just immediately pulled out of the basket and I'm like, nope, see it. We'll get gas later and just take a cutoff vector up towards this Russian who has unknown intentions. Yeah. No idea what this guy does. It's here to do. And now, before, before you get it, are, are they giving you pre-mission briefs as to like, if some Russian shit goes down... Here's your SOPs and your ROEs for that. And that's all in writing. Yeah. It's all like, you know, in order to, I mean, if you shoot down this Russian airplane, it's about to get lit, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get serious. So, I mean, they have to, you have to meet, they have to meet hostile intent or hostile act. And hostile intent is very well-defined. And just, just showing up on your wing is not hostile intent. Now, if they start doing aggressive maneuvers and they're carrying ordnance near our people that can hurt them, that they're getting pretty close. Yeah. 
Now, so Russian hostile, they had, to, if I recall correctly, the Russians had to have a hostile act before we would interact with them. Syrians, though, were like, nah, bitch, uh, hostile intent and sorry. And I got close. I put, started pushing pressure on the trigger to shoot down a, a Syrian one night uh, until he finally figured out he was fucking lost and left. And what got you to that point where you're like, close, man, we're, you're real close to going bye-bye? I mean, it was very well defined. It's like, if, if this happens and then this happens, you can do this. And mm-hmm. then if he does this, then you can do this. And I had already gone down the, the, the ladder and the ladder of things that were required, like to the point where I'm armed up, the missile, I take a missile lock and I'm like, you got about two seconds. And then I'm starting World War Three. Right, because they, they know when you're missile lock on them, right? And I did that. I, I that I did that on purpose. We had talked about that, like because at night, you know, we fly with MVGs. We're supposedly better trained and have higher situational <laughs> awareness, right? We're supposed yeah. to know, what, what, you know, which way is fucking north. Yeah. And the Syrians though had a tendency of just kind of being fucking lost, <clears throat> and especially at night because they don't fly with MVGs. They don't necessarily have a, a good map. They're not. They don't have NVGs when they're flying at night. We're, I mean, really, there's only a couple countries in the world that fly with MEGs. Man, that's got to be difficult. Eh, just turn down the lights. <laughs> so they, I mean, yeah, they, they don't fly with MEGs. I don't even think they had a moving map. So they're just kind of navigating based off of like, well, there's a town, I guess. I think that's this one. Yeah. Um, whereas we, you know, we have GPS. We know exactly where we are, hopefully. And we have hired SA. But he had crossed a line in the sand that we had drawn uh, and even told them don't fucking cross it because um, we have Americans and coalition forces in this area. And if you if you show up with bombs or something like that and we think you, and you come close, you cross this line, that's shoot down time. Yeah. So that line was an actual geographical space. So you could see it. Well, I'm looking at him in the targeting pod. So our radar was locked, but our, our targeting pod snaps to it too. So you can actually view the plane. Mm. And I see the, that line in the sand go underneath his plane. I'm like, fuck, locked up, it armed up, locked up. And then two seconds, I'm like, please tell, tell me that his radar warning receiver is working. <laughs> because he's going to know that I have him locked now. Right. And I, I gave him two seconds to react. And then right before I squeeze that trigger, he's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. I think he was, and we just assumed that he was lost. He just lost. Damn Syrians. How much uh, uh, on this particular uh, deployment were, did you find yourself communicating on a regular basis with ground forces? Every flight. Yeah. Every flight. I mean, even the, even the uh, defensive counter air missions, because it was dudes on the ground. We were talking to them. And, like, and if they had call outs for targets that they wanted us to investigate, we would. So every, every mission, every single mission. So um, whether it was just, you know, not just, not ground control, I forget what they were called, but the, the tactical controllers in Baghdad, or if it was an actual JTAC with a radio, I was talking to them every day. So if there were guys out on a mission, you're talking to a CCT or, or, or a JTAC that's actually on the ground in the direct vicinity of where your support. Yeah, and in Raqqa, they, you know, they had... Um, multiple different task force task forces up there uh, of varying countries. Uh, they were all special operator types uh, operating with um, SDF, the Syrian Democratic Force, so the anti 
ISIS dudes who right. were, and also, also happened to be anti-Syrian regime dudes. It's like the meaning of the fire. Yeah, it got real, real complicated in there for yeah, a while. Well, it is, still is, but. But yeah, they'd be, they'd be right there with them. And they didn't give a shit. They're like, hey, I need a thousand pounder in this, you know, apartment building. Uh, and I'm like, okay, what's the, what, what's in there? There's one sniper. Do you want to, okay, okay, fine. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, it's danger close. 25 meters. 25 meters? Yeah. They want you to drop a thousand pound bomb. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. And for those who don't know, that's hella close. That is very close. Yeah. You can not even try and throw a rock that far. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be within a thousand meters of one of those things going off, no. much less hundred. And it's hitting a building and the amount of destruction that that yeah. w- would ensue as a result of that is yeah. insane to think about. But they didn't care. The Syrians didn't care. They're like, yo, no, we're pinned down. Like, we have, they have a company of dudes. Yeah. Like 150, you know, pipe hitters. They're like, no, 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 this one sniper's got us pinned. We yeah. need this building gone. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And w- was that pretty normal? It's pretty, uh, on a yeah, day-to-day pretty basis normal. where uh, you're dropping ordinance? Yeah. I, I think... Maybe half of my missions, we came slicked off. So all of our ordinance had been used. The other half, you know, there were, it was very, I'd say maybe 10 to 20% of my missions, I didn't drop anything. Um, but I, about half of them, I would drop everything. Just going back empty. Just going back empty, which is nice. Less drag. Yeah. You don't have to take on as much gas. That speed, low drag. It's the life right there. I mean, it's like, you know, you, if you go buy a weight set at, uh, you know, Academy Sports and you put it all in the back of your pickup, doesn't handle as well. Right, right. And you stayed in the Marine Corps for a while after after that deployment. Yeah, what what I, was your the rest of your Marine Corps experience like after so that? So I left the squadron in uh January of 2018. So a couple months after we got back from the deployment. And then I became a uh, I went on a fact tour, Ford Air Controller. Uh, which is the Marine Corps does this. Most services don't. Uh, where after you do your first tour in the air, blowing stuff up, uh, you go learn how to use the radio and be on the other end of those bombs uh, and calling them in. And just having that intimate knowledge of airspace control measures and how how we operate the weapon systems themselves, what what the pilot needs to know to get to yes, to get to dropping that bomb. Uh, or shooting that gun. And uh, that, we just have that intrinsic knowledge just after years of having it beaten to our head. Right. So while like JT, you know, he was a, um, he was a JTAC. I was trained, you know, as a JTAC as well, but I also spent, you know, eight years flying planes uh, and dropping ordnance. So just have that intimate knowledge. So I spent a year and a half, yeah, about a year and a half as a Ford air controller uh, I was with 2nd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion in um, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And that was great. I loved it. it was, I, w- I was like the fifth highest ranking guy in the battalion, but had nobody. I was not in charge of anybody. Yeah, LAR is like this kind of weird standalone thing. Like they were in Pendleton, they were always kind of like off doing their own thing. Like they weren't attached to the normal units and stuff like that. And they're... I'll let you go through the specifics of it, but it's an eight-wheel vehicle that's got, I think, what is it, 20 millimeter on it? Uh, 25 millimeter Bushmaster. That's right. Yep. Uh, so there's multiple different variants of, of the LAV. 
Uh, LAV25 is the one you're talking about. It's like, it looks like a small eight-wheeled tank, but it's not. But it's just that Bushmaster, which is pretty cool. Uh, they have, you know, log variants, you know, just carry stuff. They have a mortar variant. They have an 81 millimeter mortar in the back of it. So they just kind of park and then boom, start lobbing yeah. 81s. Uh, and then they got a C-square, so a command and control vehicle, just chock full of radios, stuff like that. So, yes, everybody on the grunt side looks at LAVs and they go, what the hell are those things? And why aren't they participating with us? Uh, so they don't belong to a regiment, right? They belong to the division. They are division-level asset. They are deep reconnaissance. They, they go in to about, so there's a forward line of troops. They go 40, 50 clicks past. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just there to raise hell. And it's pretty fun. And those, they, they call them uh, pigs. <clears throat> the vehicles, they call them pigs because they kind of are. But they're they're pretty fun. I got to do some live fire with them. It's, uh, it's a good time. Yeah, my um, one of my drill instructors was in one of those during the invasion, and he, he told us a lot of stories. And they <clears throat> they were getting into the ship pre- pretty good during the invasion. Um, and a lot of people, I'm assuming, would be asking like, why why go from the being an F-18 pilot to going on the ground and being a ground force guy? So that's kind of the golden path. Uh, you know, you do three years in a squadron and that's a long time. You're pretty burnt out because, you know, it's not all volleyball on the beach. You know, it, we're basically nerds like who fly really fast. And it's just a lot of study, a lot of deployments, a lot of debts, a lot of training. You know, you'll be hard pressed to find a, a fighter pilot who doesn't work 12, 14 hours a day. Uh, and three or four of those hours might be in a, a room with no windows studying. Um, just doing nerd stuff. And, and the, like the best fire pilots I ever knew weren't Tom Cruise. They weren't jocks, right? They weren't just running around gunning, you know, running and gunning. They were like Iceman or, you know, Iceman with, you know, nerd glasses. Uh, because that was what made them good was that they knew the answer to every question that they might receive in the air. It wasn't gut. It was knowledge. Yeah. The amount of Top Gun references that you've made in this podcast is is pretty incredible. Thank you for doing that. Well, that's all anybody knows about it, right? <laughs> that's all anybody knows about naval aviation is Top Gun. Yeah, there's. it really hasn't been popularized too much in uh, the like fiction media side of our culture, right? Like there's, what was that one from that movie from the 80s? It's like Strike Eagle or something like that. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. But, but there's not really a whole lot out there for it. No, like where not. you can, Top Gun's really the only thing. Well, there's that stupid movie, what, Stealth, where they had the AI. That was like terrible. Oh, yeah, that was horrible. That was a horrible movie. Stupid. And the follow-up to Top Gun is coming out. I, I think I heard that just got pushed back again. That was supposed to I'm, come I, out this fall. I'm, I'm pretty disappointed about that. I'm pretty that. excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's super cool because... Um, I think they, I think Tom Cruise was actually in an aircraft for this one. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I believe it's the first time that they've actually done any onboard filming. So I, I, know, the, I know the guys who did the film. Oh, do you? Yeah. So, um, all, so when, when you see the commercial and they're flying like five feet over the ground, just hauling ass. Yeah. Those are Blue Angels. Blue Angels are the only people, naval aviators, who are allowed to fly that low. Uh, they have a waiver from like the highest on high to do yeah. that. Uh, per regulation, I'm not allowed to, I was not allowed to fly lower than 300 feet without either being in combat and having to or two landing. 
Like, (laughs) (laughs) right. So yeah, but to have the, you know, so the Blue Angels recorded that and uh, they flew him around and, and, you know, made, try to make him pass out and stuff like that, which is always, which is always funny. Yeah. You know, outside of the whole weird, like Scientology thing, like Tom Cruise is a pretty rad dude. Yeah. Like, he got hurt on that last mission, Impossible. Like, I got, I got a lot of respect for dudes that get in there in the trenches. There's his body out there, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did that that stunt where he was he was hanging off of the side of a 130. One of the last Mission Impossibles too is pretty cool. Hmm. So what? So why did I go do that? Right. So why did I go become a fact? So after those three to five years or your first tour, you're you're a senior captain. You're probably up for major. Uh, if not pretty soon, you should be. Um, and you go, they want to make you a well-rounded officer. Mm -hmm. So we've, I'd been in the wing, I'd been in flight school. I had been in not your standard Marine Corps unit. You go to the grunt side and you're like, oh shit, this is how the Marine works. Marine Corps works. I mean, the wing is in its own right, very difficult and has its own, uh, rigors and stuff going on. But the grunt side is just, it was completely eye-opening. I felt like I was like, oh, I got reintroduced to the Marine Corps. Right. Um, but so you go do that for, for a breather. It's kind of a breather, but it's also giving back to the to the fleet. Because I'd have, you know, you don't want to stovepipe your knowledge on the wing. You want to give it back to the people that we are designed to support. Right. Um, so I spent a year and a half there. Uh, I started working my way out of the Marines from Camp Lejeune. Uh, and so I just kind of, I exited stage right at that point. What would have been the that next progression? So So after a year, I would have gone back to a fleet squadron. Okay. I'd go, so I'd So the, the trick is you want to go on your fact tour and come back within a year because you don't have to go back to flight school. If you remain within a year, you can go back to the squadron, take a couple simulators, and then boom, you're good to fly again. Uh, anything more than that, then they're like, oh, we got to do you a refresh. It's going to take you about six months. You have to go to Miramar, Shucks. That sucks, right? San Diego. Uh, but you don't go back to the fleet right away. So I would have gone back to the fleet. Uh, I probably would have been a major. And they probably would have either had me for a um, some kind of patch. So like, uh, like a Top Gun patch or WTI patch to be an instructor pilot. Uh, and then possibly a department head. So like OPSO, XO, maintenance officer or something like that. Yeah. Um, so after knowing you for a little while now and, and kind of rehashing some of these, these stories in your course of your career, um, like throughout your, your life, you've kind of striven or made strides to, uh, kind of pursue this like higher level of either profession or, or objective within your life. Uh, like what what would you kind of just say defines you as an individual who is constantly of that pursuit of greatness, I guess you could say? So I would say it's uh, curiosity. Yeah. A lot of it's curiosity. Uh, I don't do well sitting by, you know, sitting alone, doing nothing, being bored. I'm going to go figure out something. Um, also, like I've never not been in school. Even today, like since I started school when I was five or six years old, I went to high school, then I went to college, and then I went to flight school, which is in and of itself, it's a whole new realm. And then in the fleet squadron, you know, you're always learning. You're always trying to do something better so that you can help affect the team in a good way. 
And then I left the Marines and now I'm in school again. So it's, I guess it's just kind of a, a lifelong student uh, mindset. Yeah, that's, that's really fucking cool, man. Like, I think a lot of people just forget to like pursue that, that source of knowledge throughout their life where they just get into these ruts and just like become comfortable and, and kind of lazy in what they're doing. And I, uh, you know, kind of threw you into the ringer uh, at Black Rifle too and kind of just like, hey, learn all this shit, but do it on your own, you know. Um, what was uh, what was kind of your track after you got out of the Marine Corps before you ended up here? Uh, so when you're a pilot and you're about to get out of the military, I mean, the easy path is to go to the airlines. Yeah. Like a lot of my buddies... Are flying for the but I have to imagine like that would just be so freaking boring after doing what you did. Uh, it it is, but at the same time, it's it's an easy, not an easy job, but it's a lower weight job, I would say. So like you know, some of my buddies who are you know, I mean, they're furloughed now, <laughs> uh, but they you know were flying at Delta before the COVID stuff hit. Uh, you know, they'd work ten days out of the month, yeah, and they're making bank. They're making good money. Um, you know, you get free tickets for you and your family, regardless. Uh, you get to go see all these cool places, whatever. Um, but for me, I don't want to sell it short. Like I, yes, I did not want to do the airlines thing. And there are a number of reasons why. One is I just hate giant groups of people. Like I, I don't want to, my nightmare is to be stuck in Atlanta international. (laughs) Like I just, I don't want to do it. And if my job is to go to that place, I just can't, uh-uh, I can't do it. It's, it I'll get, I'll get fired because I'm probably going to kick somebody's ass in the airport. And I just didn't want to, I didn't want any of that. Um, there is the aspect of, yeah, it's not as interesting, whatever, it's a bus. Um, you know, a, a common saying that we would use was um, all the stuff that airliners do. That's, that's our admin. That's, that's how we get to the battlefield. You take off in the, the takeoff and landing phase, you know, we, we, when we would brief it, if we were with a group of people that we knew really well, we'd be like, hey, admin, standard. Yeah. And then just move on. What are we going to do? We don't need to talk about it. It's like, you get in the plane, turn it on, and then go there. Um, <laughs> it's just, we've just simplified it as much as we possibly could. Uh, whereas that is their entire job. Um, with some added caveats of having, you know, 300 freaking souls on board. But it, it just didn't really interest me. And also, like I said, about large groups of people. So looking at that, I was like, well, what do I do? You know, I don't want to fly. That's what I'm trained in doing. How do I transition what I know and hopefully the skills that I think I have in, into something that is, provides monetary value? Well, I got to learn the hard skills of business. And a common transition tool for military veterans who already have their degree is to get an MBA. And um, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm getting my MBA at Texas A&M. And, um, it's a, it's a good school. I like Texas. My dad went there. It's pretty easy sell, uh, for me to go there. And then for the second time in my life, the federal government is paying for me to go to school. So we designed it, me and my wife designed it to where we would have enough funding, uh, with savings to survive without a year and a half of income. Um, so that I could, you know, learn the language, learn, more about Microsoft Excel and so that I can make your life easier. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I'll be wrapping that up in a couple months. Yeah. So Preston came on and, um, 
what, what did we say are the official title? You're, you're essentially like a content finance analyst. Business analyst for content production. Yeah. But doing um, a lot of a lot of the number crunching that uh, is required in order to like basically make sense. And from from my perspective, what we're trying to do is is really super interesting problem to solve because there is so many wheels that are turning all at once at Black Rifle Coffee to include this free range American podcast, Coffee or Die, uh, you know, getting into the specific series of what we're doing, all the campaigns that we're trying to accomplish, um, and and then cater that to uh, ultimately tying back uh, a a value down to the smallest piece of content that's that's being produced, um, which after our uh, you know, in, in the process of, of getting you on board and, and getting into the weeds on it, like we haven't really found a company that's trying to, or that has done this before, which I think is super interesting. That, and if they know, have, they wouldn't share it with us. Right. For sure. And that, you know, this group of dumb knuckle draggers is one of the first people to, to get so into the, the monetization value and attributable value to individual pieces of content. Uh, that in order, because we're primarily uh, the ultimate end goal here is is to scale to a large degree, right? right. Uh, we, we've got a very tall task ahead of us as far as the the number of veterans that we're trying to employ and the the overall growth factor that we're trying to accomplish within this nation. Um, and it, it's a pretty fun thing that that we're trying to accomplish here. And I think it's super interesting for you going from this you know, really awesome profession of flying fighter jets around uh, to this, to this other unique problem that we're trying to do. I think, I think you're really a, a perfect example of what um, uh, an organization like this is capable of as far as uh, a transition period in, in business. Yeah, no, it it is a very interesting problem uh, to try to solve. And uh, just being, you know, having an engineering degree and being analytical in nature and also the all of the analytical stuff that I had to do as a fighter guy. Um, it's all about the details. And that's just kind of what we're tearing into now. And, you know, f- trying to solve it to where we don't actually have to do much with it. It automatically shows us. Uh, so automated, what's the Bill Gates quote? Um if I want to solve a task, if you want to solve a task, hire somebody who's lazy because they'll find the easiest way to do it. Sure. Uh, so not to say that I'm lazy, but I, I would like to have to where there's automated and, you know, it just kind of does it on its own and the way we can move on to other problems to solve. Right. Well, Preston, thanks so much for sitting down and, and sharing your time with the Marine Corps and we're, we're going to get a lot of work to do. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the office now. <laughs> thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, guys. 